Hello, greetings, and welcome to another edition of The New and Living Way, a Hebrews podcast. I'm Ethan, and I'm so glad that you've joined us and given us the gift of spending time with us as we continue to explore uh, the message of the Hebrews author. We begin today in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. Previously, we explored an introduction to Hebrews <clears throat> to try to understand how the Hebrews author and the Hebrews letter um, is very hard to totally contextualize because we know so little. The letter begins here. There is no uh, recipient explicitly mentioned. The author does not explicitly identify himself. And even within this section, we have the uh, challenge and the conundrum that's going to bedevil us throughout the entire letter. Uh, what we just read is one sentence. I know in the English Standard Version, as in most versions, it's broken up into different sentences, with, uh, and that's because English cannot handle uh, this kind of sentence. It is saturated with allusions and references that uh, a person very familiar with the world of Judaism, Second Temple Judaism, would pick up upon very quickly. Uh, God speaking to our fathers by the prophets, um, the, uh, who, through whom he created the world, the radiance of the glory of God, uh, the uh, making purification for sins. Uh, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, even the idea that uh, God created the world through him, uh, appealing to the idea of, of, of the wisdom uh, in Proverbs and other places. So all of these things have, we're going to see have a lot of resonance if you understand the Hebrew Bible. And yet it is written in elegant, concise, powerfully rhetorical Greek. Uh, this is often called the exordium, which is a really fancy term for an introduction to a treatise. Uh, and the reason why that word exordium is used, it's a technical term coming from the world of rhetoric uh, as, as handed down from Aristotle and others in the Greek world. And so that's the challenge and the conundrum that we have here, is that we have a Jewish... Christian author writing a message, preaching a sermon that is full of substance that relates to um, the Hebrew Bible and 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 the, the position that a Jewish Christian would be in, but also written in elegant, amazing Greek. Uh, to compare, for instance, Romans one one through five is another a Greek sentence that Paul wrote. And uh, then this is not trying to say that Paul is somehow uh, not good or somehow inferior. Uh, he is an apostle. He uh, is inspired a, a, by God to write a powerful message there in the first few verses of Romans. But we can see the difference in style. Where even in that uh, section in Romans, we can see that Paul meanders a little bit, uh, as is his pattern, as is his want. Whereas the Hebrews author is just so tight here, and 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 substantively just deep. We're going to spend all of our time today unpacking uh, what he has to say here, and even then we're probably not going to exhaust it all. 
And you can even just hear it. I'm going to read the first verse in Greek, and, and you're not going to maybe perhaps understand the Greek, but just hear it. Polumeros kai polutropos palai hotheos lalesas tois patrasen and tois prophetais. You can hear the P sounds, the uh, alliteration going on there. You can kind of hear a cadence going on there. That's that's Those two adverbs, polumeros and polutropos, are not often used. They're, they're very precisely chosen in this context, and they're chosen for their substance, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but also for its sound, the way that it, 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 it hits the ear. And that's a reminder to us that we have, it's called the letter to the Hebrews, but by all evidence, it's a sermon with a, a letter conclusion slapped on the end of it. Uh, this is definitely something designed to be heard. And uh, it's beautiful in its hearing in what uh, the Hebrews author is trying to say. And again, the Hebrews author, we recognize that he is a Christian uh, of a Jewish background. Uh, we don't exactly know who he is, um, but he knows his Greek rhetoric very well. But he also knows his Hebrew Bible exceedingly well. So again, this is one sentence. Um, verse 4 is kind of a hinge because uh, substantively when we talk about the passage, we know we talk about verses 1 through 3, and then we kind of take verse 4 and it's 4 through 14 uh, because the rest of the first chapter is kind of a, uh, a an intensification and an ex explanation of the argument that is really being made in verse 4. Uh, we're going to consider 4 of hinge verse by talking about it now and also talking about it again with the rest of chapter 1. Uh, because even though substantively the message is, seems to be connected with what follows, it's still part of this one sentence, and so it has to be grappled with with this sentence. And again, it's one sentence. And, and this is where the Greek versus English becomes a challenge, because you read this in English, and, you, and if you ask the question, who is the Hebrews author's subject here? It would be very tempting to say Jesus, because um, verse 2 and 3 and 4, Jesus is the subject of the sentence. But again, that's the way the English makes it look, because of how the English uh, can, has to structure things. It's all one sentence, and the subject of that sentence in verse 1 is God. I mean, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, in the prophets. In these latter days, he now speaks in the Son. Um, so it, God is a subject. God is the one working through this entire section. It's God who's a subject. Um, and yet, as we're going to see, God is working in Son, in Christ, in Jesus. And that's going to be a major uh, element as we continue. But we, to, before we can get there, we have to look at verse 1, where God spoke to our fathers by the prophets at many times in many ways. Uh, the emphasis here on speaking, the Hebrews author constantly emphasizes that, where Paul and others were talking about, it is written for the Hebrews author, it is God has spoken. He puts a lot of emphasis on the speaking. And there's merit to that. Um, the Hebrew Bible has come down to us in written form, uh, but the substance of his message, almost from beginning to end, was spoken. The law was spoken before the people. Um, the history relates what happened, and it would be read before the people. Uh, the prophets spoke their messages to the people. And it's very important to see here how the Hebrews author has conceived of the entire enterprise as God speaking by prophets. Um, when we look at the Old Testament, a lot of times we very much buy into our modern divisions. Well, here's the law. 
here's the history, here's the wisdom writings, and here are the prophets. Um, but underneath all of that is really that it's all being moderated through the prophets and mediated by the prophets. Um, Moses is a prophet of God. Um, that's why you can say, Deuteronomy 18, that God will raise up for you a prophet like me uh, because he's a prophet. So the giving of the law, yes, it comes by God, given through angels, but Moses' declaration of it and recording of it is done by prophecy, as a prophet. Uh, the books of history um, in the Hebrew Bible are part of what's called the Nevi'im, the prophets. They're called the former prophets or the historical prophets. Because the book is not a history book like you're used to. Uh, the book tells you all the failings of the people because it's, it's a motivated, agenda-driven history. It's telling the Israelites, see, this is what your fathers did. This is how God interacted with your fathers. This is how your, your God demonstrated covenant loyalty to your fathers and how your fathers did not show covenant loyalty to him. And this is what happened to them. It is absolutely an object lesson for later generations. And it is written by the prophets as a prophetic message, uh, just as much as um, God speaking through a prophet, giving a message at a particular time, as in the prophets. Uh, David speaks by the Holy Spirit as a prophet. Uh, the, the New Testament authors insist on that. The, the Hebrews author himself will insist on that very shortly. And so from beginning to end, it is seen as God is speaking to his people through the prophets in all of these various ways and at various times. Uh, that is all true in substance. We can see it throughout the Old Testament. Uh, God speaks sometimes directly. He speaks to a person. Uh, whether or not that is audible or whether or not it's a voice that they perceive in their head is, is sometimes not made clear. Uh, God has spoken by dreams, like to Joseph. Uh, he has, speaks in visions, like with Ezekiel or Isaiah. Um, also with Isaiah and Ezekiel, Sinax, where um, God will speak through ways particular events happen, or the prophet will act out or rehearse something that is a message to the people. Um, so God does absolutely communicate in various ways, including through um, people you think would be his opponents. Uh, in, in Chronicles, uh, the chronicler relates that uh, it is Pharaoh Necho who speaks the word of Yahweh to Josiah saying, why are you in my way? Um, that's not what, what is intended here. Definitely not somebody you would expect to be speaking uh, the word of God, right? And... The other thing that the Hebrews author is trying to do here is to emphasize uh, a, a discontinuity here. So you have, in the past when God spoke to the fathers, it was in many times in many ways, which shows a level of discontinuity, that there it, it's over time, and it is. You've got the law, you've got prophets, you've got a message that's spanning from something like 1400 BC to 400 BC, a millennium, and... Even though we do the best we can to paper over the cracks, there are points of discontinuity. You have uh, messages that don't sit well with each other. You've got prophets saying, hey, uh, God did not tell you to sacrifice in the, in the wilderness, or you did not sacrifice in the wilderness. Uh, and many times where uh, I hate your feasts, I hate your sacrifices, it is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then, of course, you have Leviticus. Uh, which talks about all the sacrifices that ought to be offered and how. And we can maybe make some arguments to try to harmonize all of those, but there's still a gap. And there's other aspects in which in the story there's gaps. Uh, and and that's, the Hebrews author says, yes, there are gaps. Yeah, that this, this is part of the way that was made known and revealed. Uh, there were, were these challenges here. But now, in the latter days, he has spoken in Son. 
Uh, there's no um, article there in in his Greek. Uh, it's in, not in. Uh, it is in the Son, and the Hebrews author would try to deny that. Uh, but it's in Son, and and we really need to make much of that preposition in. Um, this is kind of like where Paul is actually with uh, everything being in Christ. To be very clear, nothing we have heard about Jesus has come to us directly from Jesus. Anything that you hear, well, well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. Or Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross. Uh, Well, sure, I'm not going to deny Jesus said that, but you haven't heard that directly from Jesus. You've heard that Jesus said that uh, according to what Matthew has written or John has written. Uh, And so Jesus didn't leave us any direct recollections. We don't have anything written by Jesus uh, everything we know about Jesus is, is mediated through the apostles. In fact, the Hebrews author will make much of that in verse 3 of chapter 2, that the message uh, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And why that's important is that uh, God has spoken in the Son and he has spoken in the Son by those whom have been empowered in the Son to provide that testimony, a.k.a. the apostles and their associates, that whose record of that we now have in the New Testament. So that's very important, that the New Testament is the, is the testimony of the apostles and their associates of how God has, has spoken to us in the Son. And that is the way the authority works. The authority is not in the text because it's the text. The authority is in God, given to Jesus, who gave it to the apostles to establish these things. And the Hebrews author is being very clear and deliberate about that. And it's it's therefore coherent. It is all given at once. Uh, It does not require nearly as much papering over uh, as as does the Old Testament. The gaps aren't there. Uh, It's given in its fullness because we see it in the example and character of Jesus, as, as he will say afterward. But before we do that, that uh, in the latter days, in these latter days, you know, uh, so much speculation goes on about latter days, end times, uh, and so many have fundamentally missed what is it's all about here. That it is, uh, the, the, there's the prophetic last days. When Joel says, in the latter days, I will pour out my spirit. Uh, Ezekiel sees this image of the temple that will be built in the latter days. Uh, in the prophets, you always have that message of hope and restoration in the latter days. And the Hebrews author is, is, is tying into that and said, these are the latter days. What you are seeing now in what God is doing in Jesus is what was prophesied that would happen in the latter days. We are in the latter days, absolutely. And that is what God is doing in the church. And, and we want to often make a lot of discontinuity between now and the future. And some want to make a whole lot of discontinuity there. And there is a level of discontinuity, but there's also a lot of continuity. Uh, in, Sal- in Christ, as we see in First Peter, even here in Hebrews, there's now and not yet a salvation. Uh, we have it now. We are in Christ. We have this, the forgiveness of our sins. But we're still waiting for its fullness. Uh, we haven't yet finished the race. We haven't yet uh, seen him face to face. We haven't enjoyed the resurrection yet. So we are in the latter days. Uh, the latter days are ongoing. And we should not be looking for a latter days after those latter days. Uh, it's going to be latter days and then it's going to be judgment and resurrection. And so now the rest of the passage is about the sun. And it's a very elaborate series of statements being made here that have a lot of illusions going on. And all of it is making an argument 
for the people that are hearing, uh, to recognize the great power of the Son and the placement of the Son in God. And so now we have seven statements, what do you know, about the Son. That uh, he is a, God is appointed to be the heir of all things. He is the inheritor of God's estate. That he has obtained all power and he is going to share that inheritance in his people. That through whom he created the world. To us, we hear resonances of John 1, uh, which goes back to Genesis 1. And we make the statement, yes, God has made all things in the word by means of the word. God spoke and it came out and it happened. Uh, the, the power of God speaking. For Israelites, they're hearing wisdom in Proverbs 8, in the book of wisdom, uh, some, an apocryphal book, uh, where wisdom, God has created all things in wisdom and all these other things. And the Hebrews are saying, yes, that wisdom is not philosophy. It's not uh, what so many have taken it as in this generation. No, it is Jesus. It is now embodied in the Son and through whom all things have been made. Uh, he has the radiance of God's glory, the imprint of his nature. Uh, he uh, radiates out the glory of God. God has great glory. Uh, the whole hope of the resurrection is we will be glorified with the p glory of God. And Jesus radiates that glory. And he is the character of his hypostasis. Um, I'll use those words deliberately. Character uh, sounds like character. And exactly our word character, characters, it comes from this. And what character is, is it's the impression. You know, you take a coin and you mint it and you strike it and now the coin bears the imprint of the image. And that's the idea. Jesus is the character of God. He is the imprint of God's image. Who is God? What's God about? We see it in Jesus. And it is the heart of his hypostasis. This is not the Trinitarian formulaic idea of hypostasis that will be developed in, in Nicene and beyond, but it's not contradictory to it. Uh, it's just the essence of God. It, it goes back to, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Uh, and it's a very powerful way of saying that. And he's bearing the world, by, all things by the word of his power. Yes, all the creation is sustained in God. One of the very big fallacies of the idea of God is create all things, wound it up, and let it go. Uh, no, God actively sustains the creation. We exist according to his will. And if he would have ceased to will it, it would no longer carry on. But there's also, with Jesus especially, the idea of reconciliation. Jesus has affected the reconciliation of God in the world. It is through what Jesus accomplished on the cross that there is a cosmic forgiveness, that there can be, uh, God can become all in all again, because uh, uh, he, the, the, the gap that sin and death has created can be bridged in him. And we shouldn't deny that as a major part of it. Uh, he has uh, made purification for sins through what he has accomplished on the cross. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, sitting at the right hand of, uh, evokes Psalm 110, and power and authority. And, and so many times we see that, we might think, you know, junior partner, junior chair. But to Israel, there's only one throne of God. And so if Jesus sits at the right hand, it's not that he's sitting in a smaller seat next to God. He is sitting beside God. He is on the throne with God. And if he's sitting on the throne with God... He can't be just uh, some created low man on totem pole. It's another thing about the fact that through the Son, God created all things. If, if God created them through him, he is not one of the creation, which is a major point that the early fathers brought up, um, that he is not part of the creation. He is, you know, Arianism is not correct. Um, and here we have another emphasis on that. And that's really, interestingly, the whole point here, because when we look at what's the core idea 
that Jesus has become superior to angels because he has inherited a greater name than them. If he's that greater than an angel, who is he? What's greater than an angel? Well, the only thing greater than an angel is God. And so this whole passage is very marvelously woven together, an argument that Jesus is God. It's not going to pass muster in a polemical context because uh, in po- polemics, everything gets flattened out and uh, reduced to its fundamentals. Uh, and that shows you the problem with fundamentalism. But you see throughout this whole thing, God has spoken in the Son and has all these things are true about the Son that he now sits and has authority on high, that he is the means by which God created the world, that he is the exact imprint of God's essence, and he is the radiance of God's glory. He's God. Jesus is God. And this is going to prove very important as we continue on, especially if you go along with the idea that one of the things that there is despair about, which is something that's so foreign to us, is that maybe some of the people that he's writing to uh, see Jesus so much in his humanity that they've forgotten his divinity. We tend to do the opposite, where we tend to see him so much as divine that we forget his humanity. But if if that table is turned, you can really see the power of this argument. And it's going to be a hard one for Jewish Christians, since, you know, in Judaism, God is one. And one of the biggest stumbling blocks to Jewish people uh, believing Jesus is the Christ is this idea that Jesus is God. Um, only God is God. Well, the Hebrews author is making an argument very much saturated in, in the terminology of the Hebrew Bible to show that, in fact, the Son is God as God is God, and how that's possible. And again, so glad that you've joined us. We look forward next time to, again, picking up with verse 4 and intensifying verse 4 a little bit as we see the argument the Hebrews author is going to make for the rest of the chapter. May God bless and keep you until we're able to meet again. Uh, and have a great day.